Morning, Evan Hope. Morning. Morning. All right. As Jason mentioned, I was a little nervous in preparing the message this morning, but then I really thought about it, and I remembered that it's not Tim who's standing in front of you. It's Christ who's shining through him. Amen? Amen. Right. Our scripture reading is going to be coming from the book of Joshua, chapter 24. All right, before we open the Bible, let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, without you, we know we can do nothing. So, Lord, I ask that um, as we open your Bible, as we study your word, that uh, Tim will disappear, that uh, Jesus will shine forth, and that the Holy Spirit will teach us all. May we become stronger Christians because we seek to become like your son, Jesus Christ. In his name, amen. amen. All right, the book of Joshua, chapter 24. And starting with verse 14. Now therefore, fear the Lord, and serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the flood, and in Egypt, and serve you the Lord. And it seemed evil unto you to serve the Lord. Choose you this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood, or the gods of the Amorites, in whose land ye dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Amen. Our message t- uh, today is titled, Whom You Will Serve. Uh, this is probably one of the most quoted uh, verses of the Bible, and rightfully so. Uh, I've heard, uh, in the past 13 years that I've been a Christian, I've probably heard a dozen sermons using this verse. And, um, but it wasn't until I was working on the sermon that I really understood uh, the significance of this verse. We have, um, and that's, that's what I want to share with you this morning, is the background behind Joshua chapter 24. So this, this lesson is going to be kind of a history uh, lesson, as well as the application in our life. So if you look at verse 1 of Joshua 24, you see that Joshua has gathered all the people of Israel to Shechem. And he's renewing the covenant because he knows he's going to die. He's 110 years old, and he knows that his time on earth is short. But he has a final message for his people. So here at the Valley of Shechem, Israel's going to hear for the last time the words of their beloved leader. And this is from Patriarchs and Prophets, page 522. Before the death of Joshua, the heads and representatives of the tribes, obedient to his summons, again assembled in Shechem. No spot in all the land possessed so many sacred associations, carrying their minds back to the covenant that God had with Abraham and Jacob, and recalling also their own solemn vows upon their entrance into Canaan. Here were the mountains Ebal and Jezreel, the silent witnesses of those vows which now, in the presence of their dying leader, they had assembled to renew. On every side were the evidence of what God had wrought for them, how he had given them a land for which they did not labor, and cities which they did not build, vineyards and olive yards which they did not plant. Joshua reviewed once more the history of Israel, recounting the wonderful works of God that all might sense his love and his mercy and might serve him in sincerity and truth. So you see, Shechem was a very special place to Israel. I suppose, as Americans, if we could take Yorktown, Lexington, Plymouth Rock, and Gettysburg and mold them into one place, we could begin to understand the meaning that this place had for Israel. Um, there's a biblical historian uh, named Dr. Wayne Stiles. He says this about Shechem. Geography affects history. Trace any civilization back to its origin, and geography takes the center stage. Be it a strategic military position or an abundant water supply or a convenient traveling location, geography determines, by and large, where the historical events occur. 
Located in the hill country of Ephraim, the city of Shechem played a vital role in the history of Israel. This location in the middle of the nation provided the most important crossroad in central Israel. The city lay along the northern end of the Way of the Patriarchs. This road, also called the Ridge Road, stretched 50 miles to the south, traveled from Shechem through Shiloh, Bethai, Bethel, Ramah, Gibeah, and Jerusalem. This route appears continuously throughout the biblical text. And because of its central location and vital crossroads, Shechem saw a lot of traffic in history. Thus, Shechem often found itself the major events in the biblical narrative. Are you beginning to see with me the importance of this place, this Shechem? Uh, let's turn to the book of Genesis chapter 12, or turn to Genesis chapter 12. Here we have Abraham. This is the story of Abraham and his call from his land of earth. And it says in verse 4 that he's departed as the Lord spoken unto him, and Lot with him. And, and when Abraham, Abraham was 70 and 5 years old, he departed out of Haran. And look at 6. And Abraham passed through the land of the place of Sychem, and to the plain of Morah, and Canaanite was there in the land. And 7. And the Lord appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed I will give this land. And there builded he an altar unto the Lord who appeared to him. The newer translations of, uh, of, uh, this, uh, of the Bible say in verse 6, it's Sychem, it's Shechem. Both of them come the, uh, from the Hebrew word, which is the shoulder on one's back. So if you were to look down from Mount Jezreel or Ebal, you would actually see the valley look like a big shoulder on someone's back. And um, it's here that um, 400 years prior to Joshua's speech that Abraham had first built a temple to the Lord. This is where, entering into the promised land, he first pitches his tent. And this is where, after putting away the idolatry of his past, Abraham receives a covenant from God. Look at verse 1 in chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house. And until land I will show thee. You see, prior to receiving this uh, covenant, he had to step away from the idolatry of his past. And uh, God had called Abraham to be the father of a peculiar people. So let's look at uh, chapter 11 of Patriarchs and Prophets. In order that God might qualify him for this great work as a keeper of the sacred oracles, Abraham must be separated from the associations of his early life. The influence of kindred and friends would interfere with the training which the Lord purposed to give his servant. Now that Abraham was in a special sense connected with heaven, he must dwell among strangers. His character must be peculiar, differing from all the world. He could not even explain the course of action to be, as to be understood by his friends. Spiritual things are spiritually discerned. And watch this part. And his motives and actions were not comprehended by his idolatrous kindred. So in the time of uh, Abraham, we see that Shechem represented leaving his past, uh, the city of Ur, where uh, idolatry uh, was, even in, even in the household of Haram, his father, and going in to the land that God has uh, given to him. In Hebrews 11, um, verses 8 through 10, we see the faith that Abraham had in God. Now, we don't need to turn there, but I'm going to point out a couple points. In verse 8, it says that Abraham, not knowing whither he went, he sojourned into a land of promise. And t verse 10, for he looked into a, for a city which had foundations, whose builder and maker was God. So it's clear from the accounts, uh, both accounts, the patriarchs and prophets in Hebrews 11, that this was a pivotal decision in the life of this great patriarch. 
Now, he could have stayed at home. He could have stayed in Ur and followed a life of pleasure and the gods of his family. But instead, he chose to search for a city whose builder is God. So Abraham shows faith that he had in choosing to serve the God, the one true God, over the gods of this world. You see that? And we look at uh, Genesis chapter 34. I'm going to summarize this. We see Abraham's grandson, Jacob. And he's coming to a place that his uh, grandfather had come with a uh, hundred years ago. It's, he's at Shechem again. However, the Bible gives an op- opposite account of his experience at Shechem. See, Jacob's family had already been serving the one true God, but it's at Shechem where they get to associate with idolatry and they bring in the idols into their family. So let's, uh, looking at Patriarchs and Prophets again, page 204. The tarry of Jacob and his sons at Shechem ended in violence and bloodshed. The one daughter of the household had been brought to shame and sorrow. Two brothers were involved in the guilt of murder, and a whole city had been given to ruin and slaughter in retaliation for the lawless deed of one rash youth. The beginning that led to the results that was so terrible was the act of Jacob's daughter, who went out to see the daughters of the land, thus venturing into association with the ungodly. He who seeks pleasure among those that fear not God is placing himself in Satan's ground and inviting his temptations. See, in one seemingly small act, we have disaster for thousands of people. An entire city is destroyed. Abraham, excuse me, Jacob, in the end of his life, when he's given the blessings to his family, he, this, this account affected him so much that he brought up the sins of Simeon and Judah. And so this, there's a lesson that... Uh, that Jacob learns at Shechem, and he learns it very well. If you look at uh, chapter 35, verse 2 to 4, see, the, God calls him to leave Bethel, right? And here, notice what God says to him, verse 2. Jacob said to his household, to all that were with him, put away the strange gods that are among you, and be clean, and change your garments, in verse 4. And they gave unto Jacob all the strange gods that were in their hand, and all their earrings which were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the oak which was by Shechem. This passage reveals an important point. Jacob understands the importance of separating oneself from idolatry before coming to serve before God. He's going to come and, and, and restore this covenant that, that Abraham had made with God, and it's going to be given to Jacob. But he realizes that Shechem... Where, where idolatry had influenced his family, it, this was a turning point. He had, to, he had to step away from that. So it's at Shechem, where, Abraham, uh, where Jacob's family has to put away their idols and make a choice for God. So we come to Joshua chapter 8, and we see another account at Shechem. See, as Joshua, in Joshua 24, he's making the speech to the same multitude that's here in Joshua 8. These, the, the, the children of Israel have had a previous experience here. And, they're, and here, after, after the destruction of Ai, after, the, after Jericho, after Achan's sin, uh, God is calling Joshua to come and, and stand his people on each side of Shechem. And here, Israel is to be, become a peculiar people and to carry out the commandments that, that Moses had handed down in Deuteronomy 11 and, verse, and uh, Deuteronomy 27. So from um, verse 33, we see that, that uh, 
I'll just read it. And all Israel and their elders and officers and their judges stood on the side of the ark and on the side before the priests of the Levites, which bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord, as well as the stranger, as he that was born among them. Half of them over against Mount Gerizim and half of them over against Mount Ebal, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded them that they should bless the people of Israel. And it's, it says that they go on to read all the blessings and the, uh, and the curses that comes from following the, the book of the law. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 499, really brings this out. The place appointed for the solemn service was one already sacred from its association with the history of their fathers. It was here that Abraham had raised his first altar to Jehovah in the land of Canaan. Here both Abraham and Jacob had pitched their tents. Here the latter brought the field which the tribes were to bury the body of Joseph. Here also was the, was the well that Jacob had dug and the oak under which he had buried the idolatrous image of his household. The spot chosen was one of the most beautiful in Palestine and worthy to be the central theater where this grand and impressive scene was to be enacted. The lovely valley, the green fields, dotted with olive groves, watered with brooks and living fountains, and gemmed with wildflowers spread out invitingly between the barren hills. Ebal and Jerizim, upon opposite sides of the valley, near, nearly approached each other, and the lower spur seeming to form a natural pulpit every word spoken on being distinctly audible with one another, while the mountainside receding afforded a space for the vast assemblage. So I hope you're starting to see the importance of this place to the children of Israel. It's for, even at the time of Joshua, it represented over 400 years of Israel coming to God, turning away from their sins of idolatry, and choosing to serve him. And we see the importance of serving God and keeping his commandments there. But... Uh, Joshua 24, verse 23, um, there's a key point brought out. That he's instructing them, if you look at it, to put away, said he, the strange gods which are among you. You see, this Joshua's clearly illustrating that at this time, even now, the practice of idolatry is creeping into Israel. See, the outwardly act of zeal against that which Israel portrayed had not, was not enough. This detestable act of idolatry, which should have been left back in Egypt, was already starting to come back. And it's, it's this act of idolatry had haunted them all through their the experience in the wilderness, all through their battles against Jericho and I, and it's, it was haunting them at this point, and it haunts God's people today. See, Christians like the Israelites, we, we tend to cherish secret idols. But our form of idolatry has changed. No longer do we build golden calves, wooden statues, and, and gods of silver. Instead, we, we start to cherish gods of possessions, gods of fame, gods of fortune, worldly glamour. But the Bible is very clear that the worship of anything over the one and true God can only lead to our destruction. So, brothers and sisters, this is why the message at Shechem has so much relevance for us today. Now that we've connected the history uh, behind this message, let's look at its application to our life. Joshua twenty four fourteen. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth. It's no, it's no accident at all that the word serve or form of it is used more than seven times in these two verses. Obviously service is what's on Joshua's mind and his heart. And the word serve that's used here comes from the Hebrew word abad, which means to serve absolutely, a, a compulsion which like a slave and when I read that, um, I thought of Paul, who often called himself the bondservant of Jesus. And this is not in the sense that the cause of his service was he was a slave, but the, the, uh, the fidelity, the devotion to. 
So let me explain this better. Um, Joshua is calling his people back to complete devotion to God. So without a doubt, we see here that the type of service that Joshua is calling is more than just an outward act of accomplishing something in words of confession. It involves the whole person. Second part, verse 15. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. Choose for yourself this day. There's an urgency to make this choice. Joshua's expressing that it's important not to wait. I think of Paul when he wrote in Romans chapter 13, verse 11, And now, knowing the time, and now it is high time to wake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we first believed. The theme of the Bible is to make the choice for God now. See, we're not promised tomorrow. All we have is today. And we notice uh, in the verse that, God, uh, that Joshua's offered them, them a series of choices. First, he says you can choose the one and only true God. But if that's not good enough for you, you can serve the uh, ancient gods your father served before the flood. You can serve the gods of uh, Egypt, or you can serve the gods of, of the people whose land you dwell. In other words, you can go back and serve the sun god, you can serve the Nile god, and you can go and serve the, uh, the gods, of the, these river gods, moon gods. But we know that the Bible is very clear that any God that we serve besides the one true God, we're actually serving Satan. And um, in the end, there's only two camps. And that's why Joshua is making this, uh, uh, bringing this out, that this is, at Shechem here, we're at a focal point where we have to choose one or the other. There's no middle ground. So this is the key point. You're, Joshua's telling them, you're free to go back. Uh, earlier in the verse, he talks about Abram. You're free to go back to the land of Ur and go back all the way to the idol worship, uh, idolatrous worship, which uh, your father Abraham was called out of. Or you can choose God, but it's your choice. And it has to be from the desire of your heart. See, any service to God that is not voluntary is useless. God is seeking sons and daughters, not slaves. People who are forced into obedience will only render their obedience out of fear. He's satisfied nothing less than the love of the hearts. And I think it's pretty powerful that here in the Old Testament, we're seeing a very powerful image of the character of God. I often hear people say, oh, you know, God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New Testament. But that's not so. This is the same, this is the same character that Christ had. But he's asking them, choose this day, and I want you to choose me. See, if, if they want to have it another way, God's going to honor their wishes. He's a gentleman. He knocks on the door. He doesn't force you. One of my favorite uh, quotes comes from C.S. Lewis. He wrote this book called The Great Divorce. In it, he says, There are only two types of people in the end. Those who say to God, Thy will be done. And those to whom God says to them, Thy will be done. See, Joshua's choice in uh, Joshua twenty four fifteen. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. As I stated earlier, this is a very uh, a quoted um, text, and I, I believe that it's, that it's used because it expresses the heart of the spiritual leader. He's, he's here at 110 years old at the end of his life, and he's still showing that he's doing everything in his power to do what he can for his people to serve God. So you ever wonder why some Christians... Um, they, uh, they struggle so much. Their, their Christian walk is a roller coaster. I believe that it's because they haven't chosen the right God to serve. 
And you, you think about it. The Christians that you know during the week who act like heathens, but they come to church on, on Sabbath, and, and they're, they're godly. You know, the second uh, uh, Timothy warns of that, that the people in the, end day, in the last days will have a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. And uh, we see in Acts of the Apostles, a mere profession of faith in Christ, a boastful knowledge of the truth that does not make a man a Christian. A religion that seeks only to gratify the eye, the ear, and the taste, or that sanctions self-indulgence, is not the religion of the Christ. Acts of the Apostles, uh, 3.17. So you ever feel like you're living two lives? Like on one side, you're trying to stand on one mountain, the mountain of God. The other side, you're trying to stand on the mountain of this world. I have in my own life. And um, uh, prior to recent events, actually this week, I was um, an attack helicopter pilot for the Marine Corps. Uh, some of you are familiar with my testimony, and, and you know that um, the experience that I've had but, uh, and, and where God has led me. Um, but I would often tell my friends, I would tell my brother Jason um, or, or my family that I felt like I was too much of a Christian to really fit in as a Cobra pilot. But then I was too much of a cover pilot to really fit in as a Christian. The, the thing is, I didn't choose this day who I would serve. So the frustration of living a double life is enormous. You're confused, discouraged, and uneasy. That's why Josh was telling us to begin each day by choosing to serve the Lord. Yeah. And that's what re- serving the Lord means. It involves all aspects of our lives. In uh, 1 Corinthians 10.31, you could probably quote this by memory. Paul's telling us, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all for the glory of God. So a choice to, to serve God involves even the small things. There's a tendency in, um, in, in human nature to want to straddle the fence, but the Bible's clear. There's no middle area. If you're on one camp or the other, and that, that doesn't bring glory to God, is actually serving against him. And... Um, we think of uh, Revelation chapter 3 in the message of the church of the Laodicea. He's wishing that they, that they would be hot or cold because, in, in essence, by not choosing to serve God, they're actually choosing to serve Satan. The statement, as for me, Joshua is in, in essence saying, regardless of what the rest of you do, and regardless of what the rest of the world does, I'm going to serve the Lord. So even though he was the leader of this great nation, he was willing that if necessary to separate himself from it. His, you could see the focus of his life was God and God alone. So we all have to make a stand like Joshua sooner or later. If you choose to follow Christ, there will come a time where you must say, I know I cannot change you, and you have the choice of doing what you want, but I'm going to serve the Lord. And you, you have to tell that to people that you work with, your friends, and sometimes even your family. See, serving the Lord comes down to a conscious choice. You must choose to serve the Lord. It's not by accident, and it can't be inherited from our parents. Uh, I often hear my brother Jason saying that God has no grandchildren, only children. See, parents, it's great that you can lay a foundation for your children, but at the end, the choice is theirs. And you have to give them that opportunity because God gives them that opportunity. The statement, and my house. It's this amazing statement. Joshua declaring that as a God-appointed leader of his family, he claims a right to speak in behalf of his family, his children, his grandchildren, his great-grandchildren, even his servants. He's saying, as the leader of this nation, I'm declaring that my household will serve the true and living God. He was going to do everything in his power to ensure that his children and his family made it to heaven. You know what, men? 
this concept is still valid today. You see, every Christian man ought to make this decision. It's this declaration that it is his responsibility to, to ensure that he's a leader in the house and he's leading his family to God. See, too many times I've seen um, that it's the women who are the spiritual leaders of the house. And while, while we men are out doing our things to save the rest of the world, pursuing our own hobbies, our families are at home wondering why, why God has allowed you to leave them and they're having the struggle with a God who's, who's taken their, their family with them, uh, taken their father from them. And, um, you know, this is not true, but that's a perception we, of, we often see. And I used to wonder why a lot of my friends uh, left the church that I knew as a teenager. But after seeing the role that their fathers played in their spiritual lives, or the lack thereof, it was no longer a mystery. One of my best friends in high school, um, and he, he, I just recently saw him at the General Youth Conference, and he didn't show up, but he would, came, he would come to visit with me. And um, I, I looked at his life, where, where his father, who was a pastor, uh, was, was so busy, preoccupied with buying houses, buying Mercedes uh, cars, and, and rather than instructing him about God. And in the end, both of his children no longer believe in God. My friend is actually an atheist, and his sister is an agnostic. And his, the father, um, in, in, in losing that role, he ended up uh, leaving the church because he had an adulterous affair. So, men, I, w- I want you to think about your role as leading your family to God. So the second part of verse 15 says, we will serve the Lord. See, this is more than just a statement of forsaking the other gods. It means that Joshua's family will focus on the true God of Israel. His commandments will be their delight, and his worship their highest pleasure, and the glory their ultimate goal. See, the lesson that Joshua learned after fighting with the Canaanites for years was that you cannot force someone into obedience. And, but God needs leaders like Joshua today. Leaders are willing to stand up for the sincere and truthful worship of God in their lives, their homes, their churches, and their communities. So how did Israel take this message? Well, we see in um, uh, verse 24 that it says, What have you to do with the Lord God of Israel? No, I'm sorry, wrong, wrong chapter. Verse 24, And the people said to Joshua, The Lord our God we will serve, and his voice we will obey. And then in verse 31, and Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders that outlived Joshua, which had known the works of the Lord and that he had done for Israel. So that's a powerful statement there, but all, uh, we as Bible scholars, we know that all we have to do is turn the page over to the judges, and we can see that Israel forgot this message at Shechem. But the, I, I would argue that the book of Judges and the rest of the history of Israel is, is nothing but the, the, the story of them choosing to serve God Verse choosing them, uh, choosing to serve the gods of the world, and back and forth, back and forth, Israel goes, and um, and finally we come to another Joshua. If you go to John chapter four, we see this Joshua. Uh, most of you know that the word Jesus is actually um, Heshua, and uh, it's the same word as Joshua, which means God delivers or God saves. And so I don't. I don't need to mention that, um, I don't need to go through the story with you because I'm sure you all know it. It's the story of the woman at the well. But I want to bring out a key point. This is about a thousand years after uh, Joshua's uh, great speech, and we see this Joshua at Shechem. 
and he's, he's sitting down with a woman at the well, and we know they count. Like, he asks her to draw him some water, and, he, and then he offers her the water of life. And then once, um, once she asks for that water, he asks her to call her husband. And what does she say? I have no husband. And then Jesus brings out the fact that she's had multiple husbands. And the man that she's not living with, the man she's now living with is not her husband. So he's, he's convicting her of, of that sin. But you notice in, um, to, to quiet that convicted heart, she changes the subject to worship. The woman saith to him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you say that Jerusalem is a place where men ought to worship. See, uh, all the uh, sermons that I've heard that uh, talks about the story they, they tend to focus on Jesus pointing out the sins of her life, but it's the, it's the subject of worship is what brings her to conviction. And Desire of Ages, page 188. Justin's site was Mount Gezerim. Its temple was demolished, and only the altar remained. The place of worship had been a subject of contention between the Jews and the Samaritans. Some of the ancestors and later people had once belonged to Israel, but be, because they, they chose to become overcome by an adulterous nature, adulterous nation. It is true that they held their idols were only to remind them of the living God, the ruler of the universe. Nevertheless, the people were led to reverence of their graven images. When the temple of Jerusalem was rebuilt in the days of Ezra, the Samaritans wished to join the Jews uh, in its erection. However, this privilege was refused to them, and the bitter animosity that sprang up between the two peoples, the Samaritans and the Jews, they, the Samaritans chose to build a rival temple on Mount Gezerim. Here they worshipped in accordance with the Mosaic ritual though they did not renounce their idolatry. Yet they still clung to their traditions and their forms of worship. So the, the point that um, Desire of Ages is bringing out is that the, 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 uh, the issue that divides the Jewish people and the Samaritans is idol worship. And, and uh, I've, I've often wondered, you know, why, why do the Jews hate them so much? But history is very clear. But Christ's response is powerful. See, he... he gives this woman the plan of salvation. He gives her the identity of Messiah, but also the nature of his mission, the new covenant. And how does she receive it? We see that she leaves her earthly water to go and drink the water of life and to go share it with other people. See, it's at Shechem where, where the Samaritan people are brought uh, to the new covenant, where they choose to turn away from the, idol- the, the worship of idolatry and to serve God. So the message of Shechem hasn't changed in the Old Testament and the New Testament. But, you know, Shechem actually comes, the decision to come to Shechem is, is, what, is something that all Christians have to face. If you look at Luke chapter 18, we have another familiar story. This is the story of the rich young ruler. So after he asks the Messiah, what must he do to inherit the kingdom of God? Uh, uh, Christ goes through the, the last of the commandments the last five of the commandments, leaves out coveting, and then he brings that up, one thing thou lackest. You know, go and sell all thou have and follow me. So there he brings the first four commandments. But, but the man chose to reject this. Desire of Ages, page 519, about the rich young ruler. Christ gave this man a test. He called upon him to choose between the heavenly treasure and to follow the worldly greatness. The heavenly treasure was assured to him if he would follow Christ, but the self must yield. His will must be given to Christ's control. The very holiness of God was offered to the young ruler. He had the privilege of becoming a son of God and a co-heir with Christ to the heavenly treasure. But he must take up the cross and follow our Savior. 
in the path of self-denial. Christ's words were verily to the ruler the invitation, choose you this day whom you will serve. The choice was left to him. Desire of Ages, page 519. See, we all have to come to our experience as Shechem where we have to make the choice to, to choose between God, uh, the God, the true God of the Bible, or the gods of this world. But um, it's kind of sad that the young ruler chose to not drink the water of life. He chose instead to drink from the gutters of sin. But how many people do you know also make that same choice? I shared with you that... Um, that I, I used to make this, I used to, I used to live this life, uh, live the dual life. And it wasn't until uh, GYC this past year where I made the choice to serve God completely. I was listening to sermons from men like, um, if, if you were there, uh, Peter Gregory, where they would make these altar calls and they'd call people up and they'd ask him, all right, give God three years of your life. And I was like, well, I can't do that. And then, and then I was hearing, okay, how about two years? And more and more people would come forward, two years. And then, I said, well, I want to, but I can't. And then finally one year, and I realized, wow, Lord, you're that important to me that I can't even give you a year of my life in service. And um, it was at that point that I realized that I needed to make a choice for God. I didn't know how I was going to do it, but I knew that I was going to choose to serve God and him alone and that he was going to take care of the rest. I knew that the God who could raise Lazarus from the dead, the God that could create the world would, would find a way for me to serve him. And um, I'll share with you another time, but that, that door actually shut, and I'm able to serve God completely now. So if you haven't gotten anything out of the message today, I want you to, to under, at least understand this. The question, whom you will serve, is the central theme of the Bible. You can go back to the Garden of Eden, where the, the, our fathers were given, a, mess, were given um, a commandment, a choice, Thank you. <laughs> they were given a choice to serve God, to listen to his commandments. And then they were given another way by Satan. And we know that which choice they made. That's why we're here today. And um, we, can look at, um, we can look at all through the Old Testament and the New Testament where people are having to choose one way or the other. And um, we, we saw how the Shechem, was brought, the Shechem experience was brought to them. And Acts 5.29, Peter accounts that we should serve God rather than men. So that's showing that it's his choice. So if you look at um, Isaiah 14 and Philippians t- uh, chapter 2, you can see the contrast of the two gods that uh, Joshua is calling us to serve. We see in Isaiah 14, the god of this world, Satan, who exalts himself. He chooses to serve himself. Whereas in, in uh, Philippians 2, you see uh, Christ, who, was hum- who humbled himself to obedience to God, even to death. So I want to ask you, who, who do you want to serve between those two? One last quote. This is from the book, The Cost of the Discipleship. It's by a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. This man, I don't know if you're familiar with the story, but 60 years ago, he left a life of, of ease in the United States to go proclaim the gospel in Nazi Germany. And he ended up becoming imprisoned, tortured, and became a martyr for God. And this is what he says. When Christ begins to unfold these unescapable truth to his disciples. He once more sets them free to choose or reject them. If any man would come after me, he says, for it is not a matter of course or even among the disciples. No one can be forced. No one can even be expected to come, he says, rather, if any man is preferred to spurn all other offers which come his way to follow him. Once again, everything is left for the individual to decide. See, I believe that men such as Dietrich Bonhoeffer that uh, men such as John Wycliffe, uh, John Huss, 
and Jerome, they could, they could die a martyr's death for God because they made that choice before to serve God and God alone. So God has laid it on my heart to, to make an appeal. I know that there's someone in this crowd here that, that isn't choosing to serve God. And if, that, if you're that person, won't you come to Shechem today? I know that there's someone here who, who's never known God. So here in Advent Hope, won't you please come to Shechem? I know that there's someone in this crowd that knows the Bible better than I do. They can recite the 28 fundamental beliefs of the Adventist church. They can, they can go and, and recite the Ten Commandments backwards, but they don't have the primitive godliness. Won't you come to Shechem today? So if it's your choice to come to Shechem today, won't you please stand? Stand with me. Please come to Shechem. So Joshua 14 and 15. Now therefore, fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you'll serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites and in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I want to ask you today, have you come to your Shechem experience? We know that Jesus says you cannot have two masters. You'll either love one and hate the other. Can you honestly say you have put everything in your heart away except for the desire to serve God? So don't let this, don't let this opportunity pass you by. So Advent Hope, I have one question to ask. Whom will you serve? But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Let us pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we know that this message that you've given us at Shechem has so much meaning for our days. We see in the great controversy that, that, that in the end time that there's, there's people that are going to choose to serve you and be faithful to you even unto death. Lord, we want to make that decision so we can become part of that people. Lord, we know that you're calling us for such a time as this to proclaim your gospel, but Lord, more importantly, we need to be revived in the heart. We need to serve you, Jesus, first and only you. God, this commitment to serve you alone, may, may, may it be lasting. May we renew it every day. May we seek to, your Son and, and his glory. In Christ's name, amen.